You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Earl K. Miller, Pikauer Professor of Neuroscience at MIT's Pikauer Institute for Learning and Memory and Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So that's hard to do in your conscious mind because of this limited bandwidth, the single-mindedness we have. So the way your brain does this, your brain below the level of consciousness, your brain is capacity unlimited. And it's constantly churning together these things that you've been thinking about. And then all of a sudden they occur to you because your unconscious mind has put the answer together that communicates it to your conscious mind. This is why we have a lot of uh, a lot of people report having new thoughts when they're in the shower or they're falling asleep at night when their mind is completely elsewhere. And this is actually kind of part of my own creative process, because uh, if I'm working on a problem and I can't like a new hypothesis or a new theory or a new way of getting it, the information into my brain, but then I find that if I go do something else, I, I play an instrument. So I go, I play a little music or I go, I take a walk or I do something that just distracts me from the problem at hand. Then the answer comes to me because not only does it freeze up your conscious mind to allow these, these unconscious thoughts, these new synthesis from your unconsciousness, it allows it to reach consciousness because otherwise your conscious mind can get in the way. It, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, it's following these, these narrow-minded pathways that you're, you're consciously following and doesn't allow the new ideas to bubble up from unconsciousness. Exactly. And, and I'm so glad to hear that from you uh, uh, because your, your background in neuroscience, because sometimes um, you know, sometimes the instinctive mind or the unconscious mind is that, oh, that kind of like spontaneity or improvisation is kind of undervalued because it seems to come easy. It kind of flows. It doesn't feel full of effort. Because you have to do all that front work to get the information in there. So your mind, your unconscious mind has something to churn on. Is that when it finally comes, it seems like it was um, effortless. But there were a lot of effort went into it to prepare your mind, prepare your brain to com- come to that conclusion. And I also think that we do great, you know, we, we, when we're inspired by love or we're inspired by a joy, like I think that things flow better that way. And so it can be fun. It doesn't have to be uh, painful. I would say, I, I often think of, uh, you know, like a bird in the sky, you know, the way it, if it had to stop and think, this is like the, you would think, oh, it's impossible. I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall. And then you fall, but yeah. this kind of unconscious, you can kind of ride the air. That's exactly right. I mean, think about it. If you had to consciously make every decision you possibly you, you make every day, your mind would be bogged down. There's too many things to consider. So uh, not only does that limit your scope and what you can think about, but your conscious mind is also slow. It takes you time to, to make the right decision. It takes you time to, to make the right action. So it could make decisions very, very quickly without the slower intervention of your, of your, of your conscious mind. So it's adaptive that we really consciousness is only the, the tip of the iceberg of what's going on, going on in our brains, because a lot of stuff our brains need to do, they need to do it quick, they need to weigh a lot of information very quickly, and consciousness would just get in the way because of this narrow-mindedness the conscious mind has. And also, you are a musician. I'm wondering how music inspires you or frees you up, or you mentioned getting ideas. And so how does the scientist and the musician reside together? Well, I mean, like music is great. Playing music is great. Listening to but playing music is great because it's a great stress reliever. Sort of gets your mind up. When you're playing music, you're focusing on on music. 
you really can't think about anything else. So it, it's a it's a meditative thing for me. I can not think about whatever, if something's bothering me or I'm troubled about some problem or I, I've been working hard and I can't come, come up with the right answer. It puts my mind in a different place where I can relax. And I, and then again, it has, has that um, added benefit of getting my conscious mind out of the way. So then these new ideas can, can bubble up. And sometimes that does happen to me when I'm playing music. I'm not thinking about the problem I've been thinking about all day. And suddenly the answer occurs to me because I've gotten my conscious mind out of the way and focused on something else, the making of the music. It's interesting because there are many languages and we say that music is a language and sometimes it involves uh, verbal language, but often it's tone and other forms of communication. And so I'm wondering... And some people prefer that they feel it's a pure, pure communication that doesn't need translation. I'm wondering what your reflections on uh, how language influences our consciousness, our subconscious, you know, how it, language may make us notice things or prioritize things over others. And then there's these kind of uh, cultural comparisons where there's, you know, people have a, or cultures that have a strong oral tradition and those that are more uh, of a written tradition. So what are your reflections as you make these comparisons and observations? Sure, language is, a, is, um, is highly symbolic. So what language is really good for is, is, um, is data compression. I mean, it, it categorizes the world around us. If I walk into a room, and I can label things as a chair or a table. I know instantly what those things are and what they're used for. And that's a form of categorization. And categorization is the ultimate form, one of the ultimate forms of data compression in your brain. If I had to process every little detail of everything around me, my brain would be, would be completely overwhelmed. And imagine if um, when I walk into a room I've never been in before and I see a chair or a table I've never seen before. If I had to, recompute what those things are every time I see something that's new, a slightly different shape or a variation of something I already know, again, my brain would be, um, would be quickly bogged down. It would be overwhelmed. But having these labels like chair, table, instantly I know that I, my brain gets past the details, which may, may or may not be relevant, uh, often are irrelevant, and I get the essence of what what things are. So it's a way of your brain. It's a way your brain has dealt with the limitation of bandwidth of your conscious mind by by compressing things into into e easy labels, into labels that can uh, that get at the essence of things and throw away the details that we may not need in order to interact with them and use them. Yes. So it really. I mean, we couldn't it's very hard to function without memory. And there are fascinating cases and maybe you could share some interesting case studies. I don't know if you're directly involved or not, but in terms of studying people who've had, you know, long-term amnesia and what that tells us about parts of the brain and just how difficult it would be to go throughout the world like this, everything new all the time. Well, sure. The classic example of that is a, is a famous patient called HM. H.M. had his um, hippocampus removed many years ago, 1956, I, I, like that long ago, um, because he had intractable epilepsy. And epilepsy often starts in, near the hippocampus of your brain. So at the time, the, the doctors thought, well, let's remove his hippocampus, and that will um, alleviate his epilepsy. Well, that worked. It did greatly alleviate his epilepsy, but it left him, without the, it left him with long-term anterograde amnesia. He could no longer form new memories. And that was, for him, I, I've met H.M. before he died a number of years ago. And for him, it was like, he said, he was like, 
just constantly waking up for a dream. Every moment was as if he just woke up. He could maintain a train of thought for a few seconds, but the moment he was distracted, it was all gone. And then uh, every moment was just like constantly waking up. So we, uh, and you can imagine how disorienting that, that is. So yeah, we need our memory. Our memories put us in context. Our memories are autobiographical. Our memories, our memories tell, tell us where we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Gives, gives us that broader perspective. We need to place ourselves and know where we are and where we're going. Yeah, I mean, we are, I believe, the stories we tell ourselves. And, um, and so it's so fascinating to learn about this because we can tell ourselves positive stories and rewrite our futures or even our past just to not yeah. remember things in a traumatic or painful way. That's an interesting point because one of the things we've learned about memory over the years or perception for that matter is that a lot of memory is a, is a reconstruction. We don't actually experience the world as it actually is. We see what we want to see in the world. Our brain is constantly making predictions about what, what we're going to experience next, what we're going to experience in the next few seconds. So why is your brain making these predictions? It's because your brain can't process all the sensory information that's flooding into it. Our brains will be overwhelmed. So our brains make predictions about what's coming next. And we only really fully process the stuff that's unexpected, the stuff that we didn't expect. Because by definition, unexpected things are more informative. If we could predict something, we knew it was going to be there. It's not very important or interesting to us. So your brain is, is, is constantly making predictions and really only processing the things that don't match our predictions. But as a result, a lot of what we see day in, day out are things we expect to see. We don't often notice the things that don't match our, our predictions. So we, what we often see are things that, that we expected, which is why things like eyewitness testimony is like the worst evidence ever. You can see like six people who witnessed the exact same event and they will tell six different stories about what happened. Well, the movie Rashomon is a good example of that where, where uh, I think five people see two samurais fighting. The whole rest of the movie is each of them telling what they saw and they saw five completely different, different stories. But there's examples of this all over the place, like uh, one famous example from a, a book written by Alan Badley, who's a, a memory researcher. He told a story about a person who was um, in their apartment one night watching TV, and someone broke into their apartment and robbed them and attacked them. And next day, they're walking down the street, and they see the, the person who attacked them. So they call the police. The police come and arrest, arrest the guy. And they say, where were you at 10 o'clock last night when this person's apartment got broken into? And the person who was arrested said, oh, I was being interviewed on live TV. So ironclad alibi, right? The person who was attacked kept insisting, no, you got it wrong. I know that's the person that attacked me. The police eventually caught the actual attacker because it was a serial uh, robber. And when they confronted the person, the person still insisted, no, I don't care what you said. I know that's the person that attacked me. What they eventually figured out is the victim was watching the person on TV when the robber broke in and attacked them. So their brain put two and two together and got five. And But once that was in there, it was unshakable. They believed it. They weren't lying. They believed it. But it's funny, I'll say like that's an event where there's where something different happened, but their brain encoded it very different from what actually happened. And it was absolutely the truth to that person. When I think about the future, there's neural engineering. And I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that interfacing our brain. Yeah, it's hard to know where that stuff is going to go. And of course, everything with an upside often has a, a, a downside too. I mean, you know, it it's, it's very convenient for me to 
talk to my uh, speakers and, and have them turn on music or whatever. And it might be very convenient for my computer to read my thoughts so it could move my cursor around and pull up stuff much quicker than I, than I could otherwise. But there's obviously a downside to having your thoughts read and streamed over the internet to some interface that's going to do this computation. There's privacy issues there. So I would say I'm cautious about neural engineering. What our lab's work is doing, we're trying to work on interventions that will alleviate human disease and brain, brain disorders, which is we're not trying to suck memories out of your head. We're trying to improve your brain's operation. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.